Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 169 for December of 2017. The topic I'm going to talk about today is Modern Eclipse Lunacy, Part 3. In the previous two installments of this three-part series, I discussed a plethora of wacky modern ideas related to solar eclipses, and I addressed some flat-earth claims as well. In this episode, I'll be addressing claims from a fan favorite, Richard C. Hoagland. I haven't really addressed Richard's claims for a while, so very, very quickly, the reason why I tend to have episodes featured around his claims is that he's in the business of manufacturing insane claims related to all sorts of astronomy, especially planetary science, which happens to be my day job, and he's been in that business for over three decades at this point, hence a lot of material for this kind of show. There are three primary categories into which the claims fall, and I'll address them in this order. Glass structures on the moon, his Accutron measuring tremors in the force, and lizard men and UFOs and other disinformation. I'll warn you now that this is a clip-heavy show, part of why it took so long, and because he's been talking about this since August 20th of 2017, at least through the month of recording this, last talking about it as of December 3rd, 2017. So first up, glass structures on the moon. By way of introducing this topic, I'll play what do you this minute-long clip. Well, do you have a big white sheet with you? <laughs> do I have a big white sheet? A big white sheet, a big bed sheet. Yes, I can get that. You want to spread that on the ground, and as the eclipse approaches, as totality approaches, you want to watch and photograph the sheet, because you may see something called shadow bands rippling very faintly across the sheet. If you take CCD images with any good high, you know, high CCD camera now, you can amplify those, you can enhance those so that the shadow bands are really, you know, high contrast. Uh-huh. No one has known for hundreds of years what causes shadow bands. There's all kinds of theories again. My theory now is the shadow bands are the glass refractions of the corona at the edge of the moon, just like a lens magnified by sweeping across the earth at high speed. So what does all that actually mean? Unfortunately, Richard did not provide a brief, cogent statement about what he means by all of this, but really nothing that Richard says is brief. Now, I can say that without fear of him being insulted, because he and others often make light of his inability to say anything briefly. Anyway, I did not say that briefly, so what I can say in order to summarize his ideas in brief is that Richard thinks an ancient, advanced civilization built glass structures on the moon, and over the eons they've been broken up by micrometeorite and large, not micrometeorite, impacts, and so you have these giant glass shards and ruins of buildings on the moon. All glass. He claims various lines of evidence for this, all of which have been debunked by myself and others, so I'm not going to really go into them in detail here. Instead, I want to discuss the other phenomenon which Richard tasked his listeners to record. Do you have a big white bed sheet to spread on the ground? Um, probably can get one. We'll, I'll see. Because you I, need I, to look for shadow bands. Because, again, they are a mystery. Hundreds of years old. Uh, there's all kinds of theories no one really knows. My theory yeah. is it's the glass structures that are imaged in that CCD image that refract yeah. the, the corona. And you literally, it's like it's like looking at... at uh, uh, light through water 
if you ever yeah. look at the bottom of a swimming pool and yeah, you see know, the ripples, yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you get video, it'd be fantastic. If you get stills, that'd be fantastic. And then you send them to us so we post them for next week. That relatively brief and seemingly slightly uncomfortable conversation where Richard is asking a grown man if he has a bedsheet explains a bit more about what Richard is talking about and why he thinks that shadow bands would be a good indicator of whether his ideas are correct. To talk now a bit more about the background information here, the shadow bands are a real phenomenon, and they do take place during a total solar eclipse, or really actually just before totality and just after totality, and they've been observed for over a thousand years, the oldest known writing going back to about the 9th century in Iceland. But we're pretty sure we know what they are. What they look like are exactly what Richard described at the bottom of a clear swimming pool, thin bands of shadow that move around. I did not actually see them myself with my own eyes during the August 2017 eclipse, but I did have a camera phone going that was aimed at a white cooler, and we did record them as the sun went into totality. They were very brief, just a few seconds, but they were definitely there. Before I get into why we think they happened, though, Richard's analogy of water at the bottom of a swing pool is exactly wrong. Why? Because his analogy is actually exactly right for why we think they happen, which means it's exactly wrong for why he thinks they happen. He's arguing that shadow bands occur because they are light that's refracted by these glass domes and shards. That could happen if there were glass domes or ruins, but they wouldn't look like shadow bands. What you would see is an effect that I suspect many of you have seen if you've seen any sort of crystal through which the sun has passed. Uh, For example, I have a plastic multifaceted quote-unquote crystal that hangs from a lamp and sometimes I'm in bed and the sun hits it just right. When that happens, I start to see a rainbow in my eye. As the sun moves, the blue changes to green, yellow, red, and then goes away. If I could see infrared, I'm sure I'd see a little bit of that before it goes away too. Same thing happens if you have something sitting on a shelf and the sun goes through it. You get a rainbow color on the shelf or the ground or wall or whatever. It's a prism effect. The crystal is refracting the light and different wavelengths of light get bent a little bit differently than the other wavelengths do. Richard's explanation just doesn't pass the basic, does this make sense given what we know about refraction through broken glass, question. Why his pool analogy makes sense is because that is just what we think causes shadow bands. Earth's atmosphere is a gas envelope, but it can act like a fluid. It's just a very, very, very low-density fluid. The atmosphere itself is refracting the light, and the amount of refraction changes based on the density or temperature of the atmosphere, or in this case, we're treating it like a fluid. When the light from the sun is extremely well collimated basically like a laser, which only happens when the light is coming from a tiny portion of the sun just before or just after totality, then the tiny density variations in the atmosphere will refract the light around, and where there's a little less light, you get a shadow band. What you're seeing is basically turbulence in the atmosphere, just like turbulence in a swimming pool that causes shadow bands on the bottom of the pool. Shadow bands would happen all the time on Earth, except that our sun is not a point source of light. It has an angular size in our sky, 
And so the light from one side of the sun that you get cancels out any shadow bands that would be caused by the light from the other side. It has nothing to do with glass domes. The reverse of shadow bands is why stars twinkle. Turbulence in our atmosphere causes the light from the star to be bent ever so slightly. When you're in a region where you would have seen a shadow band, as in the atmosphere is a little bit turbulent and the star's light is passing through it, what you see is the star looking a little bit less bright. Effectively, a shadow band through the atmosphere of that star's light has just passed over your eyes. When you're not, it looks its normal brightness. Because it's effectively a point source of light in our sky, its light is effectively collimated. And that's why you see this effect. Now, I think I use the term effect or effectively three times in that sentence, but planets, in contrast with stars, rarely twinkle for that same, or I guess opposite, reason, but the same reason that the sun doesn't twinkle. Even though they look like a point source to the unaided eye, they do have a much larger angular size as seen from the Earth, than stars. So, the light from one side of it interferes with the shadow bands that may occur from the other side, and hence it's hard to get planets to appear as though they're twinkling. My explanation notwithstanding, Richard talked a lot more about shadow bands in his August 20th show, the day before the actual eclipse. This is one of the reasons why using a telescope with real high magnification, so you can really zoom in on that limb, or looking with binoculars, you know, very high power binoculars, which of course you got to steady, the the glass of the lenses will cut out all the UV. Remember, mm-hmm. ultraviolet does not go through glass. That's why you have to have quartz prisms and quartz lenses to image and take spectroscopy in the ultraviolet. So by looking through a telescope or looking through binoculars, you are totally, totally safe during totality, only during totality. You don't want to look at the raw naked photosphere of the sun with those glasses mm-hmm. but you'll have warning because you'll see the, the the limb getting brighter and the prominences getting higher and so you'll have warning before and of course somebody could be counting down to when totality in your local region is going to be over but you want to look for these glass structures because i am absolutely convinced those are the structures that are causing the shadow bands after hundreds of years of mystery i think that's the answer and those close-up CCD NASA images up on the radio with pictures, they show you what's there just waiting to be seen with your own eyes. So you, so, the, so the shadow bands would be somewhat akin to the phenomenon we see like uh, in the surveyor images of sinus media exactly. at twilight. Exactly. Or look at the bottom of a swimming pool with the sun kind of off to an angle. You'll see dark bands and light bands crisscrossing the bottom of the pool. That's the refraction effect of water. Glass, of course, has a higher refractive index. So across a quarter of a million miles, a small dispersion gets to be huge. Huge things aside, listeners from the Belgab Forum will recognize the infamous Hoagland chair squeak at the end of that. But here he gave a bit more detail and again, he's wrong, because things work the opposite way. Any refraction by a glass structure a quarter million miles away would be completely washed out by the time it gets to Earth. They just wouldn't show up as shadow bands a few centimeters apart. I mean, just uh, go back to the prism analogy or the crystal analogy on your bookshelf or dangling from a lamp like me or, or wherever. The farther away you get from that actual thing that's dispersing the light 
the broader and wider apart the dispersion gets. So by the time it gets to a quarter million miles away, it's effectively gone. But despite this, and despite never discussing any measurements or example images or animations that people sent him or he recorded himself, Richard, the following week, on August 27th, claimed victory. And I can announce tonight with the imagery that's on the other side of midnight and the radio of pictures that we have been photographing the glass structures on the moon for decades. And no one has known because they've been masked by the inner corona. When the technology of imagery, when the technology of the CCDs has developed to where you can see, as if you go to Radio with Pictures, that first shot I've got up there, my first image, that stunning, incredible eclipse photograph, number one, that's a CCD image that is the closest that you'll see in photographic technology to what the human eye records during a total eclipse. If you look at the moon during a total eclipse, you can see with the eye, particularly if you have binoculars or a telescope, you can see along the lunar limb the stunning shards of the ancient glass domes. They're now photographable. Thousands upon thousands of amateurs in the most attended uh, eclipse in history looked at the moon, took photographs, thousands, millions of pictures of these ancient domes as that brilliant glowing ring right hugging the periphery, the limb, the dark part of the moon shadow. It's been there all of history, and only now do we understand and recognize, based on the Apollo data and the Chinese data, what in fact we've been gazing at for millennia. They are fantastic pictures. They're stunning. They're absolutely stunning. Richard made an interesting point here. Millions of people watched the eclipse and took millions of photos. But, in spite of that, somehow, only Richard and his very, very thin circle of cohorts think that those pictures reveal anything about glass domes or ruins on the moon. This is despite Richard's very common fanaticism about citizen science, as in, this stuff will be obvious when common citizens are able to take these kinds of pictures for themselves. Well, they did and they didn't see what Richard sees. This would seem to falsify Richard's assumptions, because it's only him that's interpreting the data this way. But that didn't stop him from crowing again about this over three months later, in December of 2017. I know the experiment that will instantly prove that there are structures on the moon. In fact, a whole bunch of ordinary people, citizen scientists, Curtis, have already done the experiment, they just don't know it. Everyone who's listening to my voice who took photographs, video of the eclipse, of the total solar eclipse that crossed this country this summer, this past summer, you need to look at your footage. If you shot it with a decent telescope and you had a decent plate scale, meaning that the limb of the moon kind of filled most of the frame, you have recorded during that eclipse stunning color video of ancient glass structures on the moon's surface. Don't believe me? Go look at your pictures. Uh, I'm going to be publishing something major on this in the next few weeks because this was the major breakthrough of the eclipse of the century of 2017. All kinds of thousands of ordinary people got incredible priceless video of glass stuff on the moon that is not the corona. It's not flares. It's not the chromosphere. It's none of the normal stuff during an eclipse. In fact, it is the bottoms of some of these ancient glass domes. 
Now, if I may digress slightly before leaving this topic and resort to something that uh, is a little bit more personal, to me, that sounded like ego. Richard has been accused by many to have an ego the size of the civilizations that he purports to think lived in the solar system in ancient times, and this statement epitomizes it. In substance, it is effectively him claiming that a phenomenon, which is fairly well understood, is actually something completely different. That millions of still images and movies taken by millions of people think they show one thing, and Richard alone knows something different. As a common saying goes, uh, which I'll twist a little bit at the end, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, chances are it's a duck, not a birthday cake filled with leprechaun gold. Moving on, the next set of claims gets back to Richard's infamous broken watch, the Accutron. I discussed this in extreme detail in episode 82, so very, very briefly, Richard thinks that his watch, that's now over four decades old, is somehow a perfect sensor, and it can detect what he terms hyperdimensional physics effects in our world. The sensor works by having a tuning fork inside of it, and that fork must vibrate at a certain frequency unless certain physical properties are changed, like its mass, which he claims can only happen by other dimensional energy manifesting in our own dimension. He ignores mundane things like dirt on the watch that can affect it, or that temperature will affect the frequency. Anyway, the frequency of the tiny tuning fork in this watch is measured by a third-party device. One must take the third-party device, put the watch in it, connect that to a third-party measuring device that will measure the tuning fork frequency, connect that device to a converter cable, and plug that into a USB port on a computer. As I said, I've talked extensively about this, written extensively about this, and Expat has also written extensively about this on his Dork Mission blog, so I'm not going to go into more detail on that. It's also relevant that the guy who makes the third-party device to measure it has stated in no uncertain terms that he thinks that Richard's watch is simply broken. But it is important to point out what will sound like an ad hominem attack, but really isn't and that is that Richard is not known to be good with modern technology. This is not an ad hominem, because it goes to one's ability to properly plug cables into each other and devices and run the computer and software properly. That does sound pretty basic, I know, but Richard, when he first started his radio program in July of 2015, announced that he was having issues because he didn't know what a USB cable was. This was over a decade after he allegedly had been making measurements with his watch. Additionally, throughout the at least three different networks and now Blog Talk Radio that he's on for his Other Side of Midnight program, his show has been plagued with technical difficulties, including not being able to operate Skype and add people to a conversation. This has led to almost as many shows cancelled as have not. So I hope that you'll forgive me for pointing this out, but... I do have to think that his lack of technical ability could easily contribute to the crazy readings he gets from his watch. With that out of the way, you might be wondering what those crazy readings are that I'm talking about. The, the, the psychological and, and consciousness aspects of this eclipse uh, are probably going to be very significant. And I'm already seeing evidence in the Accutron measurements I was doing set up mm -hmm. this afternoon and um, this evening. And for 10 minutes at uh, 7.03, <clears throat> we had the most extraordinary set of readings uh, that have not happened, you know, in the days before or in the hours since. 
just for that 10 minutes, there was a huge excursion of the Akatron, the frequency. It went down by almost, uh, well, it went from 360, which is the baseline frequency of the little tuning fork, down to 330 cycles per second. That means the tuning fork is moving that much slower. Now, when you think of the physics of this little tuning fork, there's only two things that affect the frequency of a vibrating object. One is the um, uh, mass of the object, and the other is the force that's being applied to the object. And you have what are called natural resonance frequencies. Well, these little tuning forks in the Accutron are specifically cut so that they are tuned to 360. They are supposed to resonate at 360. To change suddenly, dramatically, down to 330, and in waves, it was spikes and waves, as I'm, I'm going to post this uh, at the end of the show on, on the other side of midnight so people can see the precursors. I have not had time to go back and look in the uh, astronomical you know, files we have and the, uh, the databases of Celestia or uh, uh, you know, uh, the other astronomical programs, but it almost was as if the moon had crossed something, had brushed against something, and that alignment had caused a literal tremor in the force because it was confined, it was of a given duration, it was unmistakable, huge spikes of waves, and then it died out, and it's been quiescent now for hour after hour after hour. So there you have his basic idea. And even before the eclipse, he was claiming that he was getting weird readings. Practically any real scientist would tell you, right then and there, that you probably have faulty equipment. Or, at the very least, if you're getting an effect when you don't think there should be an effect, then something is wrong with your model. Besides that, he demonstrated a lack of understanding of how tuning forks work, which is the entire premise of how his experiment is set up. The equation for the frequency of a tuning fork is related to many things, including the length of the prongs, the material strength of the material that it's made of, the second moment of area of the cross-section of the tuning fork to the fourth power, uh, the second moment of area being related to the shape of the distribution of material, how it's distributed in space, the density of the material, and finally, it's related to the cross-section of the area of the prongs. Nowhere in there is force. In fact, tuning forks would be fairly useless if they were dependent on force, because that would mean that if you hit it slightly differently when you're trying to tune something, you would get a different pitch. So if I'm a piano tuner, and I know that I have to hit my tuning fork with a certain force to get it to the right pitch, and then I gave it to, say, my business partner to go tune a piano, how are they supposed to be able to hit it with the exact same force to get the exact same pitch? You couldn't. And this is why that's not how tuning forks work. In fact, it's a feature of tuning forks that you don't have to hit it with a certain force to get a certain pitch. Any force that you hit it with is going to get the same pitch. Moving on, you might be wondering where temperature comes in, because I said that temperature can affect the pitch, and you might be thinking, hey, well, you just accused Richard of not knowing how this works, because he said that force is in there, but force isn't in there. Well, what about temperature? Temperature comes into the factor of the material properties, called Young's modulus, and that describes how elastic a material is. If temperature goes down, things get stiffer, and so the pitch is going to change, going down very slightly. If temperature increases, pitch is going to 
increase slightly. In fact, I remember this very well from my days in marching band, where I played a woodwind instrument that was made of metal, I played the flute, and when we would get out of the bus and we would tune up, we always had to change where we normally had our flutes in tune because it was so cold outside during marching band season towards the winter and so everything was out of pitch and out of pitch differently and it was all flat and it was very weird but moving on and not getting back into high school band stories it's the same thing with the watch it's the same thing with the tuning fork and this is perhaps a reason why the company stopped making them because if you go from say your warm house to the outside snow right now in colorado it's about 10 degrees fahrenheit which if i attempt to do quick math in my head i think that's about negative 5 to negative 10 degrees centigrade something like that if i go from my warm house into that my watch is going to suddenly change in how it runs it's going to go from running correctly to running slow or it's going to run or go from running fast to running correctly or some combination of that it should go without saying also that if you're going to be a good scientist you should understand how your equipment works. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I stopped working on certain project back in my grad student days or grad school days. I was studying Saturn's rings in grad school, and because I didn't understand the way the computer code I was using worked, and I actually didn't really have any interest in learning it, I decided that that was probably a good sign that I shouldn't be doing that research. Moving on, Richard had a response for skeptics like me. He pre-gamed it. A lot of people, a lot of skeptics over the years said, ah, Hoagland, you're not measuring anything, it's just noise. Because their model is that if you have a little tuning fork in this Accutron, and it's, you know, going tick, 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 360 times per second, according to Newton, you know, F equals MA, that frequency should not change. Unless you mechanically hit the watch, or you drop it, or, you know, you super cool it with liquid helium or something, so it undergoes a thermal shock and contracts, that frequency should hum like a, you know, a well-oiled kitten, mixing our metaphors very madly, forever. Except yeah, well, you guys were up there and you watched the screen, and what did you see that little humming tuning fork actually doing? What I was seeing was uh, peaks into the 1,000 hertz range, when normally it's at 360 hertz, and peaks into the thousand hertz range, and uh, and after the eclipse, it was going below the 360 hertz, uh, down into like 40 and such. And there was a little bit of that in the beginning of the eclipse too, but it was, uh, you know, it was shocking to me seeing that on a graph. <laughs> Now, according to Richard, these were important results, and they were different from what he observed in 2012, which, keep in mind, that was not a total solar eclipse. That, in 2012, was an annular eclipse. Graph number 10. That's the comparison, the 2012 measurements and the 2017 measurements. And that stunning difference, guys, is because, and I feel so dumb not remembering this, there's an 11-year solar cycle, remember? Solar maximum, solar minimum. In 2012, we were close to solar max. And in 2017, this fall, the projections are its minimum for the 11-year sunspot cycle. So what we were measuring is what I predicted 20 years ago, 
the inverse proportionality of the torsion field to the entropic surface activity on the sun. Meaning, when there's a lot of sunspots and a lot of flares and a lot of coronal activity, there's almost no accutron torsion fields to measure. When the sun is at a minimum, few sunspots, very quiescent, very symmetrical corona and all that, the torsion field is going nuts because the cycle is driven in exactly the reverse of what we see in 3D in terms of so-called solar thermal activity because hyperdimensional torsion fields are negentropic. They are windows to a universe of superconductivity where there is no losses due to heat and all that. That's what we measured, Keith, and you saw it and see it right there on the screen. It's now immortalized, and I can do now detailed comparisons of structures in the sun and moon and all that. But the real big difference, I think, that these things are happening with the destroyers, with the eclipse and all that, with the, with the hurricane, the background feel is now so much stronger in the hyperdimensional realm. It's mandating 3D effects and since the science doesn't cover the 3D effects, the mainstream is left up a creek to figure out what's really going on. Now, two quick things before I get to the meat of that. First off, if you are wondering what some of those terms mean, they don't mean anything. He was basically doing Star Trek-worthy technobabble. The second thing is, for reference, his statement about the destroyers was on how in the past few months before the eclipse, several U.S. Navy destroyers had collisions. 2017 also had a devastating hurricane season, primarily impacting Houston, Texas, Florida, and destroying the entire infrastructure of Puerto Rico. Yes, Richard had the audacity to play off those kinds of tragedies to advance his own brand of crazy. With that in mind... I went to look at his graphs that he was referring to. Uh, they're available in his show notes. Expat has, in the past, documented that, if I'm being generous, Richard has mislabeled and misrepresented the dates of when his so-called data were taken. Less generously, he simply lies about it, and this is yet another case of that scenario. When Richard was on Coast to Coast AM back in 2012, he presented what he claimed were the Accutron traces from that eclipse. He talked about and showed wildly varying frequencies from the watch, saying, hey, this is hyperdimensional physics that's crazy active and all this other stuff, and I'm paraphrasing in my own words, but you get the idea. Now, more than five years later, the comparison that he chose to present from 2012, and keep in mind that in 2012 he said this is the entire trace from the entire thing that happened, so what he has chosen to present now from 2012 shows practically a flat line. The traces from 2017 go crazy in a different way. Even if the evidence did not exist that he was misrepresenting his data from 2012, and we just went by the traces that he's presenting now, it bolsters my hypothesis that his watch is further breaking down over time. Richard likes to portray himself as a scientist. He clearly doesn't know, or at least portrays the opposite, practices of how a scientist should operate. The cherry-picking, the improper labeling, and or the faking of his data would also be enough to get him thrown out of any scientific establishment and have all of his funding revoked, all due to one simple word, fraud. 
Moving to a little bit of a lighter subject, the final topic about the August 2017 eclipse was only addressed in his pre-eclipse episode on August 20th, and that's that there was some weird shiznit going down during or surrounding the eclipse event. First up is something he actively encouraged listeners to look for, UFOs. Keith was was looking at uh, uh, what might be happening in comparison to what happened over Mexico City during the eclipse of 1991. Various people all across Mexico during the totality of the 1991 eclipse over Mexico reported <clears throat> UFOs, UFOs hanging That's right. in the sky. If someone in 2017, the year of disclosure, wanted to actually make a big grandstand move with the greatest number of eyeballs and the largest number of cameras and the largest number of Americans in the most technologically advanced country on the planet, all looking up at the same time, maybe somebody will stage a kind of a uh, uh, sit-in in in the sky next to the eclipse moon. And wouldn't that be amazing? Because every camera in the Western Hemisphere would record it, and there'd be no way to stuff that genie back in that bottle. So obviously that's the next thing you want to look at. You want to look around the sky for things that don't belong. Oh, wouldn't that be neat? As with many of Richard's claims, this one did not pan out, and he has not since addressed it. But with all the hype surrounding the eclipse, there was some that Richard, nor his callers, nor his guests, took lightly. Some kind of distracted uh, disinfo effort. I mean, there... They're advising two counties, Lee and Sumter counties, to be to. It says that they should remain ever vigilant because this lizard man was first spotted in 1988 by a 17-year-old kid who was driving like at two o'clock in the morning in the summer. Got a flat tire, you know, just kind of this cliche situation he claimed he saw a red-eyed devil about 30 yards away got in his car the alleged creature jumped on his roof right he threw it off he sped away and now at the bottom of this article i mean the greenville police tweeted some or they facebook something but this is another thing that really caught my eye this nasa map it's called sun squatch Best spots to see the eclipse and Bigfoot at the same what? time. What? The, the map shows where the path of totality and Bigfoot sightings overlap in the United States. And the okay, can you send, Joshua can, Stevens. Can you oh, send yeah. a copy of that to Kintia so we can post it? Because this is, you know, given NASA, never a straight answer. Uh, this to me seems like real efforts at distraction. What are they wanting people not to look at? So they're focusing them on fear and fear porn on the ground during the most amazing celestial spectacle you can uh, ever see. Richard, they're trying to automatically associate any strange phenomenon to hoodoo caused by eclipse hysteria. Or oh. you know, That's what it sounds like to me. Now, there are several things to say about this, the reaction by Richard Hoagland and company notwithstanding. First... The eclipse was a public relations boon for NASA, professional and amateur astronomy groups, and getting people interested in science in a unique way that hasn't happened for decades in the United States and won't happen again for almost another decade. I would interpret this as a group having fun and trying to piggyback on the eclipse in a humorous way 
and perhaps trying to get tourists to that particular town to spend their hotel and food dollars there, and not somewhere else. Second, the Sunsquatch graphic was done by NASA's Scientific Visualization Studio. I actually applied for a job there once. It's a slightly independent group of folks who create visualizations for NASA data to try to enhance the public outreach of the agency. I would interpret that the exact same way, almost like an April Fool's Day graphic. The people who work in these organizations are really just like you and me, and they have to have, and like to have, a little bit of fun now and then. I've posted in the show notes links to two articles talking about the Lizard Man map. The first is the Richmond Times-Dispatch that was linked to from Doubtful News and discussed on episode 22 of their podcast, and the Post and Courier. That was an article that was sent in by the caller that what Richard posted on his own website. The former has no comments to it. The latter does, one asking whether the site was supposed to be satire, like The Onion, another asking them to stop making South Carolina look ridiculous, they already have enough stuff that makes them look like a bunch of buffoons and don't need anything else. Another commenter told them to slow down on the drugs. Another commenter suggested that Lizardmen do become more active during an eclipse, but not to ask him how he knows that. In other words, this was a light-hearted, playful attempt to piggyback on the eclipse craze. I think that's how a normal person would and should interpret it. But, as you know by now listening to this episode, and if you've listened to others, Richard Hoagland is not a normal person, and he does not attract normal people to his stuff. Instead, once you start to believe in some forms of pseudoscience, you're easier to convince of others. Literally today, as I record this, actually about uh, 12 hours ago, I guess, I was asked why I try to point out flaws in Richard's claims. After all, all the people on the site that I was asked about this know that Richard's claims are crazy. I responded by saying that any form of pseudoscience is a gateway to others. Even if you don't believe Richard's claims per se, even listening to them or believing there might be an element of truth in some of them will open you up to believing in others. It's not just what you think about things, but it's how you think about things that's important in this world. And I think that regardless of where you are politically, uh, we can say that now is a pretty important time to be able to understand how to think about things and to be able to think critically about things and not just A, choose a crazy conspiracy interpretation, or B, take things at face value. Finally discussing feedback on this episode, um, first up is related to last episode on solar system misconceptions, that case specifically espoused by Whitley Strieber. Two people wrote in suggesting that I misinterpreted what he was claiming. Daniel, on the SGU message board, suggested that instead of the moon calming winds, he thinks that Whitley was claiming that the moon slowed Earth's rotation, and that if we didn't have the moon, the rotation would be faster, and the winds would be faster. Dave from Oregon, United States, writing into the show notes for the podcast on the website, thought the same thing. It's possible that's what he was claiming, but he was again 
wrong, even if that is what he was claiming. It's true that the moon does slow our rotation, but it's light, and it's certainly not required for a large planet. After all, Mercury has a 59-day rotation, Venus over 600 days, Mars about 25 hours. It also isn't true that just because a body is slowly rotating, it's going to have slow winds. Venus's winds travel at at least 300 kilometers per hour, or 190 miles per hour, yet its rotation is ridiculously slow. Dave also thought that I may have been a bit too hard on Whitley, where he thinks that Whitley was referring to a red dwarf star early in its life, which sends out flares, as opposed to a yellow dwarf star like the sun. Though, still, flares are not gamma rays. He also thought that I was being too hard on the second claim, where Whitley's stumble and stutter was about thousand versus millions of miles for habitable zone. I personally disagree with that because it's a claim that I've heard him make before with thousand and not million, and I've also heard the claim made by others, although as I mentioned last time, usually in the context of young earth creationism. More feedback, this time related to the previous previous episode, 167, on flat earth interpretations of the last solar eclipse. Peter wrote in to let me know that I gave flat earth proponents way too much credit in describing how they may come to the conclusion that the moon emits cold light, as in the light from the moon cools things down. He pointed me to two YouTube movies where different proponents of this idea have a metal pipe, put one end out in the open in moonlight, and shield the other end from the moonlight with cardboard. They then measure both ends, and oddly enough, the one shielded by cardboard is warmer. The reason for this is not that the moonlight is cold, but that the cardboard itself is both warm and is providing a small amount of insulation to keep that end of the pipe warm. I would say myth busted, but I'm not sure if I'd have to pay royalties, so I'm not going to say myth busted. Patrick also wrote in about this issue, and after doing some math, demonstrated that the heat radiated from something like a building into which you might place one end of the pipe to shield it from the moonlight, not that you place the pipe in the building, but you would place it in the quote-unquote shadow of the building, is going to be more in radiative energy than the night sky illuminated by moonlight. In other words, the amount of heat that the building is radiating is going to be more than the heat that you would get from the sky and the moon. Hence again, you would get a warmer end that's quote-unquote shaded by the moonlight. That's not to say that moonlight again has a cooling effect, it's just to say that what one is likely to place as a shield from the moonlight has a bigger warming effect. General to the show, lots of feedback this time. Tom B. wrote in from Iowa in June on a technicality that the force of gravity is not the same as acceleration due to gravity, that they are related, but they're not the same. Tom, a different Tom, wrote in from British Columbia in Canada with a complaint, something that I haven't gotten in a while other than from people who are, uh, we'll just say, of a more conspiratorial bent. So I wanted to read his message in part and solicit feedback. The gist of the message can be boiled down to these two sentences. Your shows just aren't memorable, to me anyway. After listening to a show, the very next day I often find myself struggling to remember details of the show I just listened to. Well, 
I have no suggestions for how to improve this, though a question is whether, Tom, you listen to my shows while doing something that you don't do while listening to any others. For example, I often have podcasts on while driving, in which case I tend to remember most of the material because I'm focusing more on that than driving, which probably isn't a good thing. Uh, But if I listen to um, a lot of the same show in a row, I don't. So if I listen to 50 episodes of a back catalog of something because I'm behind or I just started listening, even if I'm driving and not really doing anything else, I don't necessarily remember each individual episode. I also listen to podcasts while cooking, but I don't remember the material very well when I'm doing that. So possibly it's listening environment. But if anyone else has suggestions for how to make the show more memorable, feel free to write in. Obviously, it's this isn't necessarily something that I want you to listen to and forget. So with that said, I got a lot of feedback for future show suggestions as well. Graham wrote in in May with suggestions for future episodes, including remote viewing done by the CIA in the 1980s that has been interpreted by conspiracists to mean that Mars had ancient pyramids. And he also suggested an episode on Richard Hoagland's claims about Saturn's rings. Eddie wrote in in July, asking if I'd considered doing an episode on the claims about the Dogon, a tribe in Africa that certain people claim knew about the binary nature of the star Sirius before modern astronomers. Therefore, aliens. It was even featured in an episode of Mighty Max, a cartoon that lasted two seasons back in the 90s and was made to sell toys. With that said, I responded that I had often thought, actually, really, about doing an episode on the Dogon, but I just had decided against it. To me, the claim of the Dogon knowing about the binarity nature of Sirius really boils down to exactly when someone said something, over a century ago, and there's just not much else to it. So it's kind of hard to do an episode on that, and the claim itself doesn't boil down to a factoid about physics, astronomy, or geology, so that's why I haven't done it. JJ wrote in in August with a request that I tackle The Code by Carl Monk. I responded that such a large project is not something that I plan to get involved in at the moment. I also wasn't entirely sure if JJ was baiting me, for he kept speaking in the plural and asked me to email us with your intentions. So, JJ, if you're actually a listener, let me know. Jeff wrote from Australia in August, asking me to tackle the Lion's Gate astrological claims. I responded that I obviously didn't get to it in August, because I was responding just a few days ago as I'm recording this, but it looks like it's an annual thing and it's just typical astrology. Something aligns in their charts, they do a correlation to see what's happened in the past when that's happened, and then the claim is New Age stuff that can vaguely be linked to the previous stuff that's going to happen in the future. So, with that in mind, I think that about covers most of the feedback that I've gotten in 2017, uh, at least the ones that I thought deserved a response on the podcast itself. Most other people I responded to in email personally. If you emailed me in 2017 and I haven't gotten back to you and you want me to, send me another email, uh, unless you are responding to an email that I responded to in the last week or so. Otherwise, next is 2016 feedback that I still haven't gotten to. With that said, uh, announcements. Some of you may have noticed that I introduced this episode as the episode for December 2017. That's a practical issue due to when this is coming out, December 21st, Solstice Day, but it's also a longer than normal episode. Also, as I said, a practical issue given my time constraints due to work. 
So, with that said, this is it for 2017. I'll see you in 2018. Oh, and before you go, before we play that lovely end music, I do have a question. Feel free to tweet or Facebook or uh, email in your response. I'm attempting to use different audio recording software this time because I am really sick and tired of Audacity screwing things up. If you noticed any difference, and it was for good or for bad, please let me know. era. Tell random people that you will likely never meet in real life.